the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. The part of the day, the part of the week I look so forward to when we get to visit and check in with Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He can be followed on Twitter, of course, which is his handle, at Pete4CA, Pete4CA. Pete Peterson, it's a great day to be alive. (laughs) How are you? It is. Great to be back with you, Seth. Oh, my gosh. You are up to so many interesting things. I want your life. I want your life for just about a minute. You've got. I often co- say I'm the uh, most grateful dean in America. Well, I, I get it. I, I, as well, you should be because you're doing good things. First of all, this conference, I want to talk to you about Virginia, of course, and its larger implications yeah. in a bit. But tell me about this is the kind of thing I would love to go back to school if it would happen more and more. Unfortunately, it only happens at places like Pepperdine. Uh, but you guys are doing a conference on yep. – oh, this is so great. You're doing a conference on um, uh, on the title of Live Not by Lies, which, of course, right. is taken from a famous essay of Alexander Solzhenitsyn and right. uh, a lot of work from uh, our current – or our contemporary Rod Dreher. Tell us about this. Yeah, so we uh, we are going to be uh, hosting a half-day conference uh, next Tuesday here on campus in Malibu with – uh, Rod Dreher keynoting. You're absolutely right. The phrase "live not by lies" is originally taken from the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, but was adapted to uh, title the best-selling book that Dreher uh, wrote just mm-hmm. about a year ago, published mm-hmm. just about a year ago, which argues that uh, America, if not the the West, is uh, falling for what he describes as a soft totalitarianism, which is certainly not of the scope and scale as those like Solzhenitsyn experienced in the Soviet Union and behind the Iron Curtain. Um, But it is nonetheless one that is enforcing uh, speech codes and what I call a a broader eggshell culture where people feel, uh, have a sense of fear, frankly, for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time uh, to the wrong person. And while this is an environment that We've certainly seen on our college campuses uh, increasingly. We we are certainly seeing this uh, bleed out into the broader culture. You um you take this uh, this statement and this book, "Live Not by Lies," first from Solzhenitsyn and then from Rod Dreher's uh, 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 explication and uh, and contribution to that notion. And Pete, what's the first thing you think of when you when you hear the invocation? or the hymn, let me call it a hymn, Live Not By Lies. What's the first thing you think of? Well, uh, resistance. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I think about. Right? It was Solzhenitsyn who, to his countrymen and women um, who were in many ways powerless physically to respond to a totalitarian government, um, nonetheless had the ability to at least in their minds, if not 
through uh, small communities or, or what he would call parallel polices um, resist. Yeah. And, and to understand that just because the government is saying so, we, we still have a critical thinking mind that we've given, been given to us by God who created us, and uh, we don't have to accede to it. Um, and so there are ways that, even in small ways, that we can resist, even in a manifestly totalitarian environment such as the one that uh, we witness today in China, uh, but certainly through uh, the time of the Cold War. I have to I have to make a confession to you, Father Pete. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how confidential it will be, <laughs> but I have to make a confession to you, which is I have been familiar with some of Solzhenitsyn's work. Certainly, uh, all very familiar with his Harvard address. I didn't know yep. the "Live Live Not by Lies" essay very well until I saw Roger's book and and read it, yep. and then I went back to go read the Solzhenitsyn essay. Um, but it is interesting because I think you're, you're used to the word resistance. I, I, I thought of another word. I think it goes hand in hand. You'll probably agree with me. Um, that was so um, eminent in his Harvard address, which was his invocation of courage. He says a decline yeah. in courage may be the most striking feature that an yeah. outside observer notices in yeah. the West today. And it does seem like the progressive effort has been aimed at I was going to say weakening or vitiating, but really destroying our courage. And thus we end up, without even maybe even knowing it, living by a lot of lies in this country or accepting a lot of yeah. lies and quietly just living our lives under those lies. And you and I could probably collectively, by the time this hour finishes, name about a hundred of them. I'll start with one. Um, uh, America is a, system, is, is, is a systemically racist country. That would be one. Right. People hear it. They just accept it. Yeah, I've heard that. Okay. Um, we need to do what we can. It's a lie. But we live by them and we entrench yeah. them. And these brave parents in Loudoun County stood up proving not all politics is indeed local and said, we're not going to live by this lie anymore. Certainly not when you're coming for our children. No, that's all right. I mean, I, again, I think what Solzhenitsyn and certainly Dreyer in his book, what he describes and what you and I have talked about um, as being an environment on college campuses increasingly beyond, is a climate of fear. And there's no really better way that I can think to describe this soft totalitarianism is that it is marked by a climate of fear. And if we are to resist it, it will take courage. And as you say, we've seen that manifest in parents that are getting reengaged. Um, I, I call it being uh, awakened to the awakening. And in so doing, um, you know, these are not things that people are generally, I think, comfortable doing, right? I mean, I think in a... In oh, absolutely. A, I mean, right. this is the challenge. They want to beat us into yeah. submission. If they don't do that, they want to chill us into it by unleashing the FBI on it. But you're right. This right. is not easy for people to do. It is not easy to stand up and be called a white supremacist. It is not easy to be to stand up and be called a racist who wants who believes that the earth is flat. It's not easy, right? It's not, and obviously we're we're seeing now. And I mean, you and I can to, do it. You and I, you right? But but to ask parents who are just doing their best, yeah. right? No, that's absolutely right. Um, and to see the response from the progressive media to what happened on Tuesday 
uh, both in Virginia and New York, uh, New Jersey, is really remarkable and, again, is attempting to strike fear in those that uh, voted a certain way. And by name-calling and by introducing the issue of race and that those voting a certain way were racist, um, you know, the, this is, again, just an attempt to create a climate of fear. I... Um... I want to talk about uh, overcoming that, uh, but if you want to say one more thing, I, I don't want to give. Uh, speaking of calling you Father Pete, I don't want to give you short shrift. <laughs> did you know shrift came from confession? I didn't realize that. Shrove I did not Tuesday, know that. Shrove Tuesday, shrift—it's all the same origin. Ah. But uh, did, if you wanted to say another word uh, on on your conference before we move more to Virginia, I'm happy to let you. I think it's a fabulous conference. Well, it's just all to say that that. Dreyer is going to keynote at the lunch, but then it's going to be followed by three different panels. And I'll say there's going to be some debates on the panels about uh, there will be some that may have a position that the, the, the environment is not as bad as Dreyer is painting it. And, of course, we encourage fruitful and thoughtful debate. So we're going to have that on the three panels that follow. The first one's going to look at Live Not By Lies in uh, our education system from K-12 all the way up to higher ed. The second one is going to look at live not by lies in government and regulation. And then finally, we're going to have what I call a how now shall we live, yeah, uh, looking right. particularly at people of faith and how we're supposed are, to. Are you doing a conference called How Now Shall We Live? No, that's just the name of the last panel. Oh, okay, um, okay, okay. But that that is going to be the exploration of how people of faith are supposed to engage in this increasingly infected uh, by cancel culture public square. We learned about this once, I suppose. Help me out, Pete. I, I mean, I'm guessing that's a bit of a tribute, if not a, an intended full-on tribute, to uh, uh, Francis... Uh, Schaefer. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Okay, yep. so proving yep. the point that it is. Okay, Francis Schaefer, <laughs> uh, which came about somewhere roughly in the mid-70s, I'm guessing, is when his yep. work on... Okay, so... When that movement took off for, you know, um, uh, uh, how would you put it, an enhancing or tying together a colligating of, of, of evangelical belief or Christian thought um, yeah. and, and the modern world, it didn't – it had some resistance, but it didn't have the resistance it would have today, and it had far more success. Can we pick up on that just a little bit, what, what maybe some of the changes have taken place since the 70s to now that – that that make that challenge other would that be okay with you i just sure. love not planning things and just taking the conversation wherever yep. it goes you are you are a great man pete um and you run a great institution and thank god for it when people are looking for places to go for higher education pepperdine school of public policy is that place i'll tell you more about that in solzhenitsyn when we come back as will pete Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, a slightly um, a tenuous but I hope hopefully appreciated connection to your upcoming conference on Solzhenitsyn, uh, Live Not By Lies, uh, Rod Dreher's work, and uh, your efforts at Pepperdine. Um, when Ronald Reagan became president in 1981 – uh, one of the founders of your school was responsible for a Herculean effort uh, 
to get the Reagan um, White House to invite Solzhenitsyn to an Oval Office meeting with Ronald Reagan, and that person was Jack Kemp. And I just mm. thought you'd like like that connection with Kemp. Yeah, that's a great, great connection. Kemp, of course, was one of our early faculty here, uh, Salvatore visiting professor, and, and throughout uh, really the last dozen years of his life was very involved here at the policy school so that's that's a that's a great connection thank you for that well i it was just something i was thinking about when i was thinking about all our connections with solzhenitsyn and the importance we're about one or two steps removed from him in various ways you know your buddy uh down the street at uh the claremont college's charles kessler he was in that graduating class that heard the commencement speech of Solzhenitsyn's in 1978. So, too, was your friend Hugh Hewitt, if I'm ah. not mistaken. Um, would have been a nice class to be a part of. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I so. I but, so. but that being said, I wanted, I wanted to talk to you just a little bit, if I could, about, yeah, why, why in the 70s could this revival take place from the Francis Schaeffer's and uh, shortly thereafter, an awakening uh, in the religious uh, community that also, I guess, in a way, was living by by some lies in some respects. I, I often remind people that uh, what became of the values voter, um, what became the Christian coalition, what started as the moral majority, uh, that whole effort started in politics in 76 by supporting Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Um, they were Carter people. <laughs> and, yep. and, of course, by four years, uh, that had changed. But there was not this kind of resistance to that kind of thinking that you see now. Were, were two things happening at the same time? Religious were becoming uh, involved because the assaults were getting greater on the one hand, and because of that fight, the left and the progressive movement uh, to end Western civilization as we know it, went quieter and quieter into the schools where they thought they couldn't be noticed or we wouldn't raise attentions. Is something like that what took place? I don't know how to, how to, how to analyze why there is such a different tone temper and temper now than there was then. Well, I, I think you do read that right. I would say one of the obvious differences between now and back in that period and i'm thinking as well just by the way another connecting point because i know i've heard Hugh talk about this before is he had uh james q wilson as one of his faculty yeah, members right. there at harvard who was also very involved here in launching the policy school um is technology mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and the ability of the power that technology has to transmit information uh, I've been very taken. I don't know if you've had him on his show, uh, but Martin Gurry, um, mm -mm. former CIA media analyst, mm -hmm. uh, wrote a book called uh, Revolt of the Public. And the main argument that he makes there is that um, up until just extremely recently, one of the major things that's been happening in democratic cultures, particularly in the United States, but also across the West, is that the major controllers of information, i.e. the media and universities and governments, um, have lost control of information mm -hmm. um, because of the Internet and social media. Now, we're seeing backlash to that with social media seeking con to control uh, what's what's been transmitted through their platforms. But 
I think that that is another factor in, in what we're seeing now is the ability for people to connect with one another and the control of information um, has now become quite diffuse. Yeah. And that has led to realizations that some of the things that we have been told by respected media institutions, just to pick out one of those institutions, has not been true. Right. And and so that leads to uh, a, a quest for uh, true sources of information. And some of those are good places and some of those aren't on the Internet. Um, but it, it does impact this broader environment that we're seeing of a, a loss of trust in our major civic institutions. All right. You're the dean of the Pepperdine School. I'm going to ask you a really big question here. Um, okay. What does it do to a society or a civilization, Pete, when um, – what does it do to a society or civilization where the people simply no longer believe their institutions because they've discovered so many lies and those institutions yeah. – choose to double down on them. Cynicism is obviously the first thing, but I think something far worse happens, and it might be oh. compliance. Yeah, I, and that certainly was Tocqueville's prediction, right. right? That as he got into the latter chapters of democracy in America, he certainly did see a time when people were more interested in um, things that were going on in their own proximate communities. Right, or the temporal, sure, right, yeah. That they were essentially willing to give up control of these larger issues to what he described as a, a tutelary state, not something that would take your rights away from you, but one that you would give up your rights to as long as you were allowed to live in comfort and leisure. And so... The broader question you ask, can a democratic society exist or continue or flourish if there is not a, a pre-existing or foundational uh, love of the truth? It cannot. Yeah, it cannot. Uh, and it gets us back to the very beginning, doesn't it, in the Declaration of Independence where we talk about the consent of the governed. But we talk right. about the just consent of the governed in the Declaration of Independence, don't we? Not just any consent, but just consent. And That's right. It I, needs to be worthy of that. Yeah, exactly. Consent. Exactly. Right. If you want right. self-government, you have to have selves worthy of governing, Irving Kristol once put it that Very way. Very good. Yep. Um, so we, we've gone several segments, and I haven't asked you um, for your full-on take on Virginia. We've, we've, we've chewed around the edges. Can I well, take, let's not forget New Jersey, my motherland. New Jersey. There. Why am That's I ignoring right. the Garden State? I'll tell you why I'm ignoring the Garden State. I'm ignoring the Garden State because I don't eat vegetables. Well, I'm a vegetarian who will eat hamburgers coffee. and steaks. So, you may let me, not let me, let me. donuts coffee either, but that, that is a political... Let me take us Ooh. to a commercial break real quick, Pete, and we'll come back and you can tell me about... New Jersey, and you can tell me about Minneapolis, you can tell me about New York City, and if you're in the mood, you can also mention Virginia. How's that? I look forward to it. Okay, Pete. You're a good man and a fun sport. He's Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. You're concerned about where you send your children, grown or not, or yourselves back to school you don't have to be concerned if you go to the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. What you have to be 
is willing to learn. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Pete, it's Western Civ Friday here. I had your buddy Stanley Kurtz on earlier. Um, tell me about what uh, what you took away as the message or the instruction from Virginia and New Jersey and, and the elections we saw on Tuesday. Well, first and foremost, that uh, local issues matter. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to see the two Democratic candidates, Murphy and McAuliffe, in both cases, try to nationalize the race, try to focus on our past uh, president. Um, But the Republican candidates uh, stuck to the issues, focused on what was important to New Jerseyans and Virginians, uh, respectively, and, and called out their opponents for uh, distracting from the real problems each of those states face. And it's worth taking a step back here to say these were really the first two statewide elections following COVID mm-hmm. and the lockdowns that have followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a what you might call a statewide election in the, in the recall, but I would argue, uh, even though the recall failed here in California, the fact that we even had a recall yeah. in a blue state like this yeah. of an exceedingly popular governor, uh, yay, three years ago, mm-hmm. um, was just evidence that voters, particularly in blue states who suffered the lockdowns and closures of schools and businesses, this was really their first opportunity to respond. And in so doing, um, there's a chance that we may continue to see these tectonic plates shifting and new political coalitions uh, developing across the country. Let's hope. Let's hope. Uh, What you're saying is you had Republican leaders or candidates that were actually listening to their people as if we were a representative democracy rather than listening to people who wanted to raise issues that had nothing to do with the governorship of those states. I mean, I do think it's interesting in a sense people say, well, you know, Trump wasn't there. Tom Cotton wasn't. You know, the national Republicans weren't there for Yunkin. They had no business being there for Yunkin because right. that isn't. They don't represent issues that the governor would represent. The government right. doesn't. The governor doesn't do um, Afghanistan. The governor, right. unless you know, unless you're in a border <laughs> state down here like you are and I am, the governor doesn't yeah. do illegal immigration. The governor right. doesn't do the kinds of things they wanted to talk about. Right? Yeah. They do schools. They do taxes. Right. They do economic development. Right. Those are the things that they do, and uh, those are the issues that they stuck to. They do cost of living. Right. Right. And and certainly it wasn't enough to push um, the New Jersey Republican candidate over the top. But the fact that that race was even close. One wonders uh, what five million from the National Republican Committee oh might have meant goodness. there. Right. Oh my goodness. No, yeah. It would have no, made a difference he, probably because this was just a, a state that absolutely didn't. Absolutely, yeah, it would have. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Pete, on this front, this is a big one too. I think uh, it's either big or it's crazy. I never know if I'm making a big point or, or such an obviously stupid one. I just I don't know, but I want. <laughs> I never know. Do you ever have those? It's days? a knife edge. It's a knife edge. <laughs> These people out of Loudoun County, I think it's fair to say, led by this woman Asra Nomani. I don't know if you've seen some of her interviews or not, mm-hmm. uh, yep. the mama bear woman. Yes. Um, yep. 
these people from Loudoun County, they acted even against, interestingly enough, their own self-interest. Loudoun County is blue, blue, blue. And it went for, yeah. after all the Sturm and Drang, it, it, it still went for McAuliffe. They were doing something bigger here. They knew they had a bigger issue, aside from their own very children, of course. Yeah. They knew they had a bigger issue that they weren't, they weren't giving up on just their, or, give, or stopping with just their children. And that bigger issue was really teaching very reactionary things uh, very, very, very difficult things to their children, starting at age five, gender fluidity, race, that should be yeah. the province and precinct really of the de- developed and adult mind. Yeah. Uh, um, to say nothing else about how awful some of the stuff is that people like Oster Nomani discovered. And I was just kind of putting together a thought. I've not talked to her in a while, but a lot of People may remember Asra Nomani from some of her earlier work. She was Daniel Pearl's best friend. Mm. She was the best friend of the man Khalid Sheikh Mohammed bragged of decapitating. And I just wonder if a part of her soul or brain didn't didn't put together what happens when regimes, theologies, philosophies judge people better or worse based on their religion, based on their race. In other words, maybe you can address this on the other side of the break. This was our short one, and I'll give you the full, uh, the full next uh, segment to think this through with me, your, yeah. your thoughts. I wonder if she doesn't see or didn't see what happens when these kinds of race-based theories and uh, ubermensch uber and untermensch theories take hold in a society. It leads to that kind of philosophy. It leads to what some of us have called Islamofascism or other kinds of fascism, if you want. It leads to the kinds of things we thought ended at Nuremberg, but seem not to. Could you address that on the other side of this, if that makes any sense? It's either really stupid or smart. I'm not sure. We'll be right back. Pete Peterson, that's like the ska you used to uh, sing, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you remember. You remember, yes. <laughs> Pete Peterson is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. I was just making the point, Pete, before break, that what these parents were standing up to in Loudoun County, it seems to me, was um, was a rejection. Osra Nomani, I was saying, you know, she was best friends with Daniel Pearl. She, she had a first first row seat to what happens when institutions or regimes, if you will, do treat human beings like gods and animals rather than human beings, like racial creatures, um, like sexual creatures, rather than the full complement of just simply what the Western civilization has tried to teach, that we are neither beasts nor gods. And when we act that way, you get Third Reichs or you get um, you get radical Islam, you get uh, communism. Um, she, she had a first row seat to what happens, and I just wonder if some of that wasn't animating some of this. A, a full-on rejection towards the threat to the West is how I'd put it. Well, I think it's possible. <laughs> I think the bigger takeaway is the fact that we now understand for the first time uh, what's being called K-12 parents are a political category. That's huge. Uh, I, you, you tweeted that. I, yes, I'm glad you went there. I did. Go and with it, that. It Go came with out that. of Echelon Insight, yeah. which is the polling organization. And in a few days, uh, the few days leading up to the election, they found that for non-parents, 
the polling was 48 to 47, McAuliffe mm-hmm. up by one. Mm-hmm. The K-12 parents was 54-39, Yunkin. Mm-hmm. And I had wondered during the California recall what if there had been a poll like that mm-hmm. just to show, well, I wonder where California's K-12 parents right. are. Right. Uh, not that that may have shaped the the eventual result in any way, but I think it w- would have been a, a remarkable lens into uh, the changing political coalitions, because as you and I talked about before, what we saw in New Jersey and what we saw in Virginia, um, these are blue states. Yeah. And so if Republicans are going to have the, a chance to win, not only do they have to turn out their voters, but... They've got to find other voters who don't call themselves Republicans, and they've got to do it on issues that might not be the ones that Republican candidates are typically running on. But when you get into education systems, and there are really two points to that, right, Seth? One is not just what is being taught, but just this audacity that McAuliffe showed in saying that they didn't want parents to get involved right. in their kids' schools. Right. And this is something we've seen here quoted for by the – there's an amazing piece in Los Angeles Magazine with the head of the California uh, Unified Teachers Union of it, Los it, Angeles. It's the most awful interview I've ever read. Thing. It was the most awful thing I ever saw in print. I know exactly – go ahead. Tell the audience what she said. And so the union leader here was quoted as basically saying there's no learning loss right. and our kids learned about uh, – Things like uh, insurrection mm-hmm. and those, you know, types of topics. Mm-hmm. So they didn't, they didn't lose anything for the schools being shut down. And of course, you know, parents know this is ludicrous, mm-hmm. but it it is it is a culture, mm-hmm. right? And I think for really one of the first times, what COVID has demonstrated on a lot of these policy issues, especially when we're we're looking at the administrative state, the suppositions that they bring that um, they're the ones educating the kids, not the parents, that they're the ones making these policy decisions. And and you all out there, the great unwashed, uh, you really don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that just became evident uh, to so many, certainly in the Virginia race. And I think we're going to see now as we get into 2022, uh, we're going to continue to see that category polled and surveyed and it'll be very interesting to see what role they play in determining or forecasting the results of uh, these races in the fall of next year. I have to tell you, I hope you're right. I, it didn't dawn on me till you posted it and then mentioned it again here as you did. I'm glad you did because if 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 this is now added to the to the set, the matrix of how various interest groups or various uh, subpopulations of America voted, if we're now going to break out, right, K-12 parents, I think that would be a hugely useful thing for the politicians on both sides, to be honest, but particularly on our side, because to to, to remind someone of their first duty when they are a parent and what's happening with their children when the child isn't with the parent – is really the beginning of all politics and political philosophy. I mean, they can write this off on the other side as culture comp for culture wars, 
But really, it's the first thing the first political scientist Aristotle talks about in the first chapter of the book of politics. You know, communities come together to preserve their their families, and they do so to preserve and protect their families through the kind of political community that they establish. That's what Aristotle – it's right there. This To wash this yeah. away as, as, you know, fake cultural issues as the left likes to do is to do so while they're the ones redefining the entire culture. Yeah, I think that's such a, an important point, Seth, because this, I mean, who is starting the culture right, war here? Right, 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 right. You know, we just had a piece of legislation passed here in California that is going to mandate that toy stores move to unisex toy aisles. No more pinks and blues, evidently. Now, again, is that the right? <laughs> and we look at these issues of what's going on in the classroom. Is that is that a... Is that a culture war started by the right, or are we, are those on the right actually awakened to the awakening? Yeah, yeah. And and again, I think I think that's, but that's the way that this is being played. There's a certain amount of gaslighting here uh, for those on the right to say, "Hey, enough of those culture issues." Oh, they are so mad at us. They are so mad at us because they know darned well that we didn't start the culture war. We just joined it. We just joined it. They are so mad at us. But join it, we had to. We had no choice, as you have no choice to be doing what you're doing, which I am so glad you are doing, Pete Peterson. Thank you, sir. Great to be with you, Seth. As always, uh, wish you a happy, healthy, strong, safe, and courageous weekend. And to you, sir. All right. We'll talk soon, and I want to hear all about this conference. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Not a bad way to end the week. A little Eddie money. It's been a hell of a week, a great week. And um, as uh, I was saying with Pete, the battle has been joined. Um, Now that we've uh, joined it, do not let go of it. Do not let go of it. Parents woke up. And I like what Pete said. Maybe K-12 parents will be a new polled and political constituency that is seen as a subpopulation of the United States. It's the most important population in the United States. And it never dawned on me until Pete made mention of it. it never even dawned on me to think that K-12 parents should be put in a matrix of political interest groups. It is, it is not a cultural battle, exactly as the left says, when we raise these issues about what our children are taught. It is a civilizational, social, and political battle. Plato asks, or excuse me, Plato says the two most important questions any society can ask itself are first, who teaches the children? And second, what is it they are being taught? I think we forgot those questions. I think we forgot those questions to ask, but we were reminded of them not by any of our own dint, not by any of our own wanting to think that there was something wrong, but having, given, having been given the opportunity to look under the hood, finding something was very, very wrong. Milan Kundera had it. The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, and then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new curriculum, invent a new history. And before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. No thank you. Not here. Not in America. 
I'm Seth Leibson. Until Monday, God bless you all, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.